Barbara and I have talked a number of times throughout the course of the last several years. I don't really know how many times that is. They're never consistent conversations. We'll talk and then she'll disappear for a while and then she'll call me and ask if we can sit down again. Most of those conversations end the same way every time, in frustration, hers and mine both. She is a challenge to visit with for a number of reasons, but this one sits at the top of the list. When she was very young, she was hurt by someone very close to her. The details of that hurt are unimportant. You just need to know that it was real and it was very painful and it left open wounds in her life that she has spent a long, long time trying to deal with. When we first started meeting, we were working our way through that hurt and we made pretty good progress. She was dealing with what counselors and psychologists refer to as a justifiable resentment, which means quite simply, it was real. It happened and it hurt and it hurt deeply. As we made our way through that, I found out that there were other hurts in her life and she knew each one of them. These were not justifiable resentments. They were just resentment. I never saw her notebook. She called it a journal. I called it a notebook because it didn't have some of the, the normal characteristics of a journal, and that's why I call it a notebook. I never saw it, but she referenced it on a regular basis. Still does. Contained in that notebook is the name of every person that has ever hurt her and the wound that was inflicted. After those names, she writes things like this. He did this to me. She said that to me. She would bring that up in our conversations, wanting me to help her get through the pain of each one of those individual events. It became pretty clear to me that it wasn't just the other person hurting her. She had responsibility in the brokenness of the relationship as well, and she never wanted to hear that. And In fact, at one point in our conversations, I was trying to lead her to a point where she could accept that she had some responsibility in the brokenness, and she just got up and walked out. She was done, walked out. She was so mad at me. And she gathered herself up in the parking lot and came back in and sat down for a while, and we continued to talk. In our last conversation, as she was going through some of those hurts, I looked at her and I said, Barbara, what do you want from me today? I understand that you have these hurts, but what do you want from me today? And she looked at me with an anger in her eyes and started pointing at me and she said, I want you to agree with me. Just agree with me that these people hurt me. And I'd already arrived at a place where I could do that fairly easily because she was hurt. There was no other way around that. She was hurt. Aside from the fact that she had responsibility in the brokenness, her hurt was real. So that was easy for me to do. I said, I agree with you. I totally agree with you. And she kind of softened a little bit, and that hand that had been pointing at me came to rest beside her, and she, in her softening, just stared at me. She wasn't prepared for my agreement, and I wasn't prepared for her softening. I was prepared for the continued frustration in the way that our conversations normally ended, with her getting up and walking out. So now we're looking at each other and I have no idea what to do and she has no idea what to say. So I did what every good biblical Christian counselor should do. I just prayed and I said silently to myself and to the Lord, Lord, I need you to guide the rest of this conversation because I have no idea what to do now. And the Lord did. 
after my quick prayer was over, I looked back at Barbara and I said, okay, now what do you want to do next? And she said, I don't know. I don't know. Now she finally had somebody in agreement with her and, and she didn't know what to do next. She'd been fighting so hard for so long to get people to agree with her that her hurts were real that now that somebody had, she was completely stymied. Well, thankfully, God had responded to my prayer, and I said, well, I'm not sure exactly what needs to happen next yet either, Barbara, but why don't we just open our Bibles, and we'll see if the, the Lord has something to share with us. And she said, okay. I handed her a Bible off of the shelf in my office, and I grabbed mine off of my desk, and together we turned to the book of 2 Corinthians. I want to encourage you to turn there with me as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 5. Now, remember... God was leading this conversation at this point. I'd like to take credit for it. I can't. Verse 5. The Bible says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you'll find, find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not tearing down. Now, verse 11, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss, all the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, it was my intention for us to set up housekeeping, Barbara and I, in verse 11, listen to it again. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. So I said to Barbara, Barbara, there's the, the direction from the Bible. It's time for you to aim for restoration. You have all this brokenness recorded that you carry around with you, not only in your notebook, but in your heart. It's time to aim for restoration that you might experience the peace that the Bible is talking about. Are you ready for that? And she said, I don't know. I don't know. And our last conversation ended that way. I haven't seen her since. She doesn't come to church here. I haven't seen her since. I'm hoping that one day we're going to be able to sit down and, and continue to unpack verse 11 together so that she can see what is possible for her. She doesn't have to stay in this immense brokenness. All she has to do is set her sights on restoration and then do the work, get to it, and start restoring some of these broken relationships rather than perpetuating them. But that's in the Lord's realm, and he'll have to bring that about if that conversation is ever going to happen again. Now, I wanted us to look at that in Barbara's story, but today in our conversations together, I want us to back up and pay close attention to verse 5. Let's do that together. The Apostle Paul writes, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. 
Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? This is really quite an interesting command that has to do with what we're talking about with Barbara, but it begins with this idea of examining ourselves. Now that is so unique because the world, culture, society would say that we are to avoid that at all cost. To examine ourselves means that we have to be transparent. To examine ourselves means that we have to be real, to be honest with just ourselves and hopefully with God. And that type of examination is not only to be avoided according to modern teaching, but it is something that we should run from. And the reason for that is pretty simple. A number of people would say that when we start examining ourselves, we are going to come to rest only on our failures or our shortcomings or the challenges that we face in life. And that's going to put this negative air around us and over us. And nobody needs that type of thing hanging over them. So modern culture and society says don't even invest in that type of thing. It is counterproductive. Don't do it. We actually passively teach that same type of thing. As parents, we teach our children when they're very young that it isn't about them. As they grow older, teachers will teach teenagers that it isn't about them. When teenagers start to scream that life isn't fair, teachers will look back at them and say, that's right, get over it, life isn't fair, it isn't about you. Preachers will teach that it isn't about us either. We teach that it's about Jesus, it's about others, it's about the kingdom, and your life has to be much bigger than just you. So we fall prey to the same thing. We don't encourage people on a regular basis to examine themselves, and certainly life doesn't teach that. Yet here we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 with the Apostle Paul telling us to examine ourselves. Now, he puts some parameters around it so that we don't just end at a place where we say, well, I'm a failure, or these are my shortcomings, or these are the challenges that I face. The apostle says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Those are the parameters that he would give. That's the test that we are to take. Examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Well, that opens the door to a natural question, a very natural question. Where do I find that test? Do I just come to the church on a Wednesday morning and ask Phil if he could give it to me and then I'll take the test, leave it with him and he'll call me the next day and give me the results, kind of like going to the doctor's office? Do I go and talk to Danny or Sharon or Matt or Beth or Liz? How do I do this? I want to take the test. I want to examine myself to see that I'm in the faith. But what's the practical way to go about it? I'd like to tell you that that test exists. I'd like to tell you that I have it in a file and I could just pull it out and give it to you. I don't have that. Dini doesn't have that, but the Bible does. The Bible has the questions that we test against. The Bible has the parameters of this exam if we will just dig enough to find them. I want to show you this morning just four questions that the Bible would tell us to examine ourselves with that we might determine if we are in the faith. These are so important and so obvious that I'm actually going to put them up on the screen for you so that you can see exactly what we're talking about. Here are four questions that come directly out of Scripture that help us examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Here they are. Number one, do you have the witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart? Now let's go to Romans chapter 8 together. If you're in the book of 2 Corinthians, you can leave there. Go with me to Romans chapter 8. Verse 9, I want you to see this question for yourself. Romans 8, verse 9. 
You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So the question has to be, do you have the witness of the Holy Spirit in your life? Well, we could easily say, what's that look like? Is there an outward sign of it? More than anything, the witness of the Spirit in our lives is an inward issue. Do you have the Holy Spirit leading you on a day-to-day basis? Are you relying on the Holy Spirit? Are there moments in your life where you know that the Spirit has been in control and you have not been? Are there moments where God, through the Spirit, has given you thoughts or things to say that go way beyond yourself? That's the testimony of the Spirit. But really, the witness of the Spirit comes out in things like this from other people. Boy, there's something different about her. There's something different about him. There's something different about their life. That difference is the Holy Spirit. It's the fact that Jesus resides within you, and because he resides within you, he's coming out of you, and that's determining your life, the witness of the Spirit. But there are three other questions that we can use to examine ourselves as well, at least three. There are others in the New Testament. These are just the four that we are hanging on to today. Take a look at number two. Do you practice righteousness? Now, righteousness is right standing with God. It really means that the things of God matter to you and you are living accordingly. Are you practicing right standing with God? Is that visible to you and to others that your life has been transformed by him? Now let's go to the book of 1 John together. These last three, we're going to find ourselves just in that book. So you can go there and and camp out for just a little bit. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 28. John writes, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. When you are examining yourself to see if you are in the faith, this one becomes really important. Listen to how the apostle says this. Everyone who is in him practices righteousness. And it is evident. So that's one of those test questions that we can't avoid or ignore. In fact, we shouldn't. Because it sets up question number three. Is your life communicating your faith? Again, that becomes that visibility. Is your life communicating that you are a new person in Jesus? Let's go still in the book of 1 John to chapter 5, verse 4. John writes, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Is your life communicating that you are an overcomer? It's extremely important that we get to that place. If we are examining ourselves to see if we're in the faith, what does your life communicate? Now this fourth one, this one's a little bit more difficult. It's more personal. It's harder for us to want to handle. How are we doing in loving other people? How are we doing in relationships? Now this is found in 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Is that right? Yes, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life 
because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You see how personal and practical that is? The truth of the matter is, when we are examining our faith, there is no question, no test in the midst of that exam that is more directed towards the answer that is necessary than this one. How are you doing in loving other people? How are you doing in relationships? How are you doing handling the way other people react to you and relate to you? This one's tough. It is really tough. And this is the one that I really wanted us to get to this morning. Because we're in a study of Romans chapter 12, and there is a verse that goes directly to this issue. So I know that that's a super long introduction to get to this point, and the rest of the message won't take that long. But what we're about to look at is very, very, very important. Go with me to Romans chapter 12, will you? Romans chapter 12, verse 18. This will set the stage for the next couple of weeks as we wrap up this chapter. Paul writes, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. One more time. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Isn't that an interesting command? It really is. Now, I use the word command, and and I have to tell you, that's the wrong word. This isn't a command. It can't be. Do you see how it starts out, if possible? Because it starts that way, it can't be a command. By very nature, it can't be a command, because it involves relationships. And to live at peace with everyone else does the same thing. It involves relationships. So Paul knew, the man who wrote those very words knew that even as he penned them, this was going to be a challenge because other people have their own hurts. Other people have their own challenges. They have their own shortcomings. They have their own failures. And they have, listen, they have free will. So it it boils down to, at times, the fact that they have to make a choice to live peaceably with you as well. So that's why the apostle would write, if it's possible, you live peaceably with everyone, which really means you got to do your part. So as much as this isn't a command, it is still extremely important for us to pay attention to it. And I found myself sitting at my desk this last week thinking, well, what's the right word? If it isn't a command, what's the right word? And I went on my own exploration to see if I could come up with the perfect word to describe what's at play here. Finally, that exploration ended with me just typing into my computer synonyms for the word command. 51 came out of it. 51 words. Now, not all 51 of those words applies to this verse, but 21 of them do. Let me show you those 21. Take a look. This is a direction, it's a duty, it's a mandate a responsibility. It is an adjuration. And I'll be honest with you, and hopefully you would do the same for me. I didn't have any idea what that meant, so I had to look it up. That's an earnest urging. This is an earnest urging to live at peace with everyone. It's a bidding, a call, a caveat, a charge, a citation, a decree. 
It's a devoir, which happens to be a French word. And let me be honest again, I don't speak French. So I had to look it up. A devoir is a person's duty. It's an enactment. By the point that I got to the word enactment, I pretty much know what an enactment is. I know what it means. But I was cloudy enough in my little word search that I looked it up. That's the process of acting something out. Again, a French word, it's a fiat, a formal authorization. It's an imperative, an injunction, an ordinance, a precept, a summons. It's a warrant. I wanted to see what that meant. Here's the definition. It necessitates a certain course of action. This is a warrant. It's a writ, a form of written command in the name of a court or other legal authority to act. That's what this verse is. It's all of those things. It is a warrant that necessitates a certain course of action and a writ that has authority behind it. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That can be tough. But there is actually a gospel precedent for this. Not just biblical, but gospel, which means that Jesus himself would speak to this issue. I'll show you at least two spots. Let's go to the book of Matthew together. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now by saying this, Jesus is taking from us some things that we are very familiar and comfortable with. He is taking away from us our ability to blame other people for brokenness. He is taking away from us our ability to deny that we have responsibility even within that brokenness. When he starts telling us that we have to deal with the speck in our own eye before we can see the log in another person's, he's saying, you better clear up your vision before you get into this. You need to be able to see clearly, so deal with the speck first, and then you can move on to the log. And when your vision is clear, more than likely, you're going to find out that the log in their eye is not nearly as big as you once thought it to be. It's much smaller let the hurts go away. And so here we have in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, and now Matthew chapter 7, a total inversion of what the world teaches. Deal with your side of the brokenness before theirs. Deal with your side of the brokenness as much as it depends on you, as much as you have responsibility. You work out your side of this before you quickly blame someone else, before you put full responsibility on them. Look at yourself first so that you can help bring about healing as much as it depends on you live peaceably with all take care of your junk first take care of your stuff first and then get into what they might have done wrong see how that inversion works and none of us like it it is so much easier to point fingers just like barbara did i want you to agree with me i want you to agree with me you agree with me that what they did was wrong. We all want to do that. Every one of us. We all want that. Well, the Bible says, let me show you a different way. You deal with your part of the brokenness first. 
Let's continue on and, and look at the other gospel precedent for this. We'll go to the gospel of Luke together. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 27. But I say to you who hear. Now that's really interesting coming from Jesus. But I say to you who hear. Now what's the implication? There are some who don't. Now they were in earshot. So their choice to not hear was exactly that. It was a choice. I am choosing to stay in the brokenness. I am choosing to stay right where I'm at. So Jesus takes away that excuse as well. And he says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. The one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Gospel presentation. That teaches as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. Deal with your part first. And then open the door so that you can aim for restoration. You can get into 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Once you have taken care of your side, once you and the Lord have done that business, it's time to knock on the door with the other person and see if you can bring about restoration, to see if God will bring about restoration. Now, the prayer has to be that while you're dealing with your side of it, God will be dealing with them on their side so that you can come together and hopefully heal the relationship. But I do not want to leave this without acknowledging that sometimes that doesn't happen. I don't want to leave this without acknowledging that sometimes the other party isn't ready. That's where trust issues come from. Barbara has immense trust issues in her life. She doesn't trust anyone, thus the notebook. There are a lot of people that will come into my office or into the church office and they will ask a question that is so penetratingly personal that it's hard to answer. They might be talking about a marriage relationship or a family relationship or a friendship or any number of different things. Might even be with their neighbor and they'll say things like this. How can I ever trust them again? They have hurt me so deeply. How can I ever trust them again? If I were to keep track of all of the questions that I've been asked through the years, I would guess that I have been asked that question three times to every one of any other question. How can I ever trust again? Barbara had that problem. A lot of people have that problem. Once trust has eroded, giving it back is hard. It is extremely hard. And sometimes people don't want it. We operate off of an interesting principle. It's, it's one that actually comes from the church. It comes from hurts that happen within the church. And those can be some of the, the hardest and the deepest wounds that a person might ever experience. The biblical precedent is found in the, the book of Titus, if you want to turn there with me. If you don't know how to find Titus, I'll make it easy for you. Go to the books of First and Second Thessalonians, then turn right, and you'll be in the books of First and Second Timothy, then turn right one more time, then you're at Titus. Easiest way to find it. Titus chapter 3, verse 10. As for a person who stirs up divisions 
after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now here's the application of that in the church. If there is a person that is trying to divide the church, if there is somebody who is trying to inflict great hurt on the body of believers, then the Bible instructs the elders, listen, the elders to apply this philosophy. And it is an idea that our elders, I can't speak for every group of elders, but our elders take very seriously. And over the course of 15 years, I've only seen them do this, I believe, twice. And so this is an extremely rare situation, and it is one that they have to hold on to very tightly because they'll answer to the Lord for it. Here's what the Bible says. If somebody is bringing this type of hurt into my church, you warn them once. And you do so with love and mercy. And if they do it again, then you warn them the second time. This time with love and grace, and that means the grace to actually stop what they're doing. You need to get somewhat emphatic about it. And if they do it the third time, the Bible says, have nothing to do with them. You be done with them. It's the three-strike rule given to us to protect the body, to protect the church, to protect the bride of Christ. And let me say again, our elders take that very seriously, and they don't do this often. But when they have to, it comes at great prayer and great searching until finally they've said, that's enough. We can't have anything else to do with this individual because they're going to blow the church up. So we're done here. Well, we apply the same thing in our lives. The three-strike rule. If somebody hurts me once, okay, I'll give them some mercy. I'll give them some love. If they do it twice, I may still love them, and I'm going to give them a little bit of grace, but if they do it the third time, I'm done. Wash my hands of them. And for a lot of people, it doesn't even take that third strike. They get there very quickly. Hurt me once, I'm done. Wash my hands. I'm finished. You're out of here because I don't have any place in my life for that. And we start writing down hurts in a notebook, whether we do that physically or whether we do it existentially. But we carry those hurts around with us, ready to tell anybody at the drop of a hat how somebody else has harmed us. A lot of people do that. And that's where those resentments come from. And that's how trust erodes. So then the question has to be, if I've been hurt, how can I ever trust somebody again? How can I reestablish that? Well, I want to give you four things. These come from Dr. John Townsend. He wrote these a long time ago. I stole them from him a long time ago. It's all I can do because I've used them so many times now not to claim them as my own. That's how familiar these are to me. But these are Dr. John Townsend's. He said there are four things necessary to reestablish trust. The first is confession. You have to confess your side of the brokenness, but the other person's going to have to do the same. They're going to have to confess the brokenness. And once that confession is at play, then that sets up number two, which is ownership. Ownership says, this is what I did to harm the relationship. And the other person has to say, this is what I've done. I'm owning my part. And when you both are able to do that, then the third step is very easy. It's remorse. You have grief working its way through your heart because the relationship that was at one time important to you is now separated. So there's remorse for what has happened. Remorse on both sides of the relationship. And when that remorse is there, then everybody is working towards the same goal, which hopefully is 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, to aim for restoration. But the fourth thing is really, 
really important. There has to be a visible change of behavior. If you have already had a broken relationship and you're trying to restore it unto trust, it will require a visible change in behavior. Maybe from you, maybe from them. But when that happens, you can reestablish a relationship and it can actually become a trust relationship again. Confession, ownership, remorse, visible change in behavior. And then restoration can happen. Trust can happen again. It may require some creative thinking. That's why Paul would write, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. That's not just a simple command. That's not something that we can just say, oh, okay, well, here's how to do it. I've taken the test, I know. You may have to get a bit creative, and that creativity is okay. Share with you a story from Bob Russell in one of his most recent blogs as the worship team is on their way up here. I really like this because it demonstrates the creativity. There was a sheep farmer that had a problem with his neighbor. Every year during lambing season, his neighbor's dog would come into his field and kill his lambs. Well, he went and talked to his neighbor about it, and the neighbor, really, if he had tried, couldn't have cared less. He said, it's your problem, not mine. Sorry. So this man ran through all kinds of options of things that he could do. Certainly, he could call the sheriff. He could sue him. He could take him to court and hopefully get a little bit of money back to help deal with the lambs that he had lost. He could, it was within his rights, shoot the man's dog. He could take care of the situation on his own. But the sheep farmer was a Christian, and he was trying to think of a better way to do this because he wanted to live at peace with his neighbor. So this is what he did. That year at Christmas time, he gave each one of that man's children a lamb as a gift. It only took one day before the dog was tied up. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You might have to be a little creative to do it, but do it because it matters. And when you are examining yourself, testing yourself to see if you're in the faith, there won't be any question about it. 